This is Think It Through with me, April A. Bear. Get ready to start thinking. I know, it's hard, and you'd probably rather not. But here we go anyway. Hello, and welcome to Episode 10. This episode is about something even I don't understand. Well, okay, I have a basic understanding of the general concepts involved, but just enough of an understanding to know that I really don't understand much. Confused yet? Yeah, me too. But one thing I am fairly sure of is that I'm not alone in my misunderstanding of things like probability and risk. Humans in general are really bad at these concepts because they don't come naturally to us. All the way back in episode one, I discussed typical heuristics and cognitive biases that get in the way of our ability to think clearly and rationally, and they have a lot to do with the problems we face in effectively estimating probability and risk. Psychologist Paul Slovic says that we can misjudge the threat levels of possible events based on how we feel about them, and that our feelings of risk are often more important to us than the actual statistics of risk. And that means we often get it wrong, and it can lead to poor decisions. All right, let's find out why we are so bad at understanding probability and risk. Michael Shermer, historian and science writer and one of my favorite skeptics, calls this tendency folk numeracy. He says that folk numeracy is our natural tendency to misperceive and miscalculate probabilities, to think anecdotally instead of statistically, and to focus on and remember short-term trends rather than see how things play out over the long term. How does this happen in our everyday life? Here are a couple of ways. One of our most common probability errors is with trying to make sense of weather forecasting. Let's take the probability of rain. We may mistakenly believe that if the forecast says 20% chance of rain, that means it's going to rain for 20% of the day. But what it actually means is that at any point during the day, there's a 20% probability that it will rain, which leaves an 80% probability that it won't. So it probably won't. But it might. I actually fell for this kind of error recently when I went on vacation. And at one point during my stay, the weather forecast said 40% chance of rain. So of course, I was prepared with an umbrella and some ponchos. But although it got cloudy, it didn't rain all day. That evening before we went out, I checked the forecast and it said that the chance of rain had diminished. So I left my rain gear at the hotel. You know, of course, what happened next. We got caught in a downpour and we got soaked. Boy, did I feel dumb and wet, but I also felt very, very human. We also make probability errors when we're gambling. In fact, we can fall victim to a common fallacy known as the gambler's fallacy. This has to do with not understanding that the next event in a sequence of independent events cannot be adequately predicted simply by knowing what happened before. For instance, if someone tosses a coin and gets five heads in a row, you might think that surely the next toss must be tails, because you wouldn't expect five heads in a row. But 
Each toss has nothing to do with what came before it. There's an exactly 50-50 chance it's going to be heads. People fall victim to this fallacy all the time, assuming that chances of something happening are higher than they actually are simply because it's due to happen. This can lead to a related fallacy known as the hot hand fallacy, in which you might win a few hands of poker or craps and truly believe you're on a roll, as they say, maybe even irrationally believing that you just can't lose. It can even get to the point that when you do eventually lose, you keep playing anyway, expecting to gain your winning streak back, which is called chasing losses. This kind of behavior can cause a gambler to lose far more of their money than they ever intended. While lots of people's lives have been ruined by these fallacies, there are successful expert gamblers who realize that the key to winning more than losing is to have a clear understanding of probabilities and to control for loss, meaning they're less likely to chase their losses. They will stop betting and walk away long before they ever get to the point where they've lost too much. The next example has to do with anecdotal evidence. We tend to believe information or stories told to us by someone we know or someone who says they know someone who knows someone who knows something about whatever. As a communication professor, I am keenly aware of the power stories and examples have to connect people. We use stories to pass information on to each other and have done so since we invented language. This deep connection to storytelling can be a drawback when it comes to evidence, though. Anecdotal evidence is often more persuasive than evidence gained through scientific research. And why is that? Because thinking anecdotally comes naturally to us whereas thinking scientifically doesn't. We've been trusting in stories for many thousands of years. Scientific thinking, by comparison, is only a few hundred years old, and at this point it's much more difficult for our brains to process this kind of information. It's not impossible, but it takes a lot more effort than hearing and believing a compelling story. The anti-vax movement, for example, gained followers largely due to this tendency to believe anecdotal evidence. Despite the overwhelming scientific evidence showing that there is no causal link between vaccinations and autism, anecdotal evidence provided by parents is often far more convincing. Michael Shermer says that our brains are belief engines that seek and find patterns, and the experience of First, my child got a vaccine, then he developed autism, sure feels like a legitimate pattern. Combine that with the stories of other parents who experience similar things with their children, and it can seem like very powerful evidence showing that autism and vaccines are probably connected. But just because something happens first, what happens after that is not necessarily caused by the first event. To assume that is to commit the fallacy of false cause. The only thing linking vaccines and autism is that vaccines are generally given before the time that autism symptoms would normally show up. But that often doesn't matter to the parents of autistic children because fighting feelings with facts doesn't work very well. The third example has to do with how we focus on short-term trends rather than long-term ones. 
For instance, we might see one cold winter as evidence against the long-term statistics that show a general warming trend for the planet. Or we might freak out over a sudden sharp downturn in stocks rather than look at the solid upward-pointing trend of the market over the last half century. Or we see an increase in the crime rate in our city over the past year as evidence that we're all going to hell in a handbasket rather than focusing on the significant downward trend of crime over the past 20 years. We do this because we don't really see much beyond what affects us in the moment. And these events certainly could. Our pipes could freeze in the winter and cost a lot of money to fix. Our stocks could lose a lot of their value due to a downturn. And we might have our house broken into and all our stuff taken. We tend to think in these momentary terms. The longest span of time we can seriously contemplate is generally our own lifespan. Thinking about hundreds or thousands or millions of years, while we know that those lengths of time have passed, and we do occasionally think about them, they just don't factor into our thought processes on a regular basis. Evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins calls this human tendency to see only what's right in front of us middle world. We see things of average size or importance and simply don't process much of anything either below or above that threshold. Our tendency to misperceive things also applies to our ability to determine risk. We spend a lot of time weighing the costs and benefits of decisions in order to determine how risky something is. Unfortunately, we generally suck at it. We either think the risks of something happening are far higher than they are or far lower than they are in reality. For example, chances of you being hurt or killed in a terrorist attack are about 1 in 104 million chances per year. Our fear of terrorists is way out of proportion to the possibility of experiencing an act of terrorism, but when these things do occur, they get a lot of attention and cause a lot of fear. What are we much, much, much more likely to experience than a terrorist attack? Well, I've said this before, but your chances of being killed in a car crash are about 1 in 106 chances per year. I mean, that statistic should give you pause. But are you afraid to drive? I didn't think so. Oh, and here's a fact about self-driving cars. Most people say they don't trust them and don't want to get in one because they think it's too risky. But they have been shown to be far safer than ones driven by humans, and the relatively few accidents that they have been involved in have gotten a lot of press, which may lead to the impression that they aren't safe. Maybe if we weren't so skittish about this technology, we could go a long way towards reducing the number of automobile deaths per year, which in the U.S. is about 37,000, and definitely reducing the almost 2.5 million injuries per year caused by Americans driving around like maniacs. And finally, depending on how virulent the dominant flu strain is going to be this year, Anywhere from 3 to 11% of the population will get sick with it. Lots of those people will end up in the hospital, and some will die. But you might have already decided, nah, I don't need a flu shot, I'll take my chances. However, if it ends up being a bad flu season, with up to 45 million people in the U.S. alone catching a really nasty flu, you might want to reconsider. 
Maybe that flu shot is a good idea after all. So what's going on in our brains that makes us misunderstand probability and risk? Oh, there's a lot going on. We rely on instinct and intuition far too much. Things that we instinctively believe are highly unlikely, a million to one chance, or even a miracle, are often easily explainable. For instance, if you put 30 people in a room, what is the probability that two of them would have the same birthday? Our intuition would suggest that it would be really unlikely. After all, there are 365 days in a year, and so wouldn't different pairs only have a 1 in 365 chance to have the same birthday? And then if you multiplied that times 30, wouldn't that make it a really, really slim chance? Seems that way, doesn't it? Well, not only is my intuition in error, but my math is way, way off. Hey, I told you I don't understand this stuff. Actually, there is a 70% chance that two people out of those 30 people have the same birthday. That's a fairly high possibility, and I know it just doesn't feel right, but it is. In case you don't believe me, I've put the birthday problem calculator in the show notes so you can see for yourself. Okay, then what about having a dream about someone you know, then finding out the next day that that person had died? Michael Shermer explains how we can take known data and calculate that it's actually inevitable that some death premonition dreams come true, and that it would be far stranger if none of them ever did. However, our old nemesis confirmation bias causes us to ignore or forget about the ones that didn't come true, making it seem like the one dream that did pan out was truly prophetic. The availability heuristic is also a factor in our misinterpretation of risk. We are more likely to think that something is riskier if a dramatic event related to it recently happened and is all over the news. In fact, according to a 2016 report by the website Our World in Data, the media's coverage of events where people are killed is inversely proportional to how likely we are to be killed by that kind of event. So things like suicide, homicide, and terrorism account for fully two-thirds of coverage in the media, but account for a much smaller percentage of actual deaths. Heart disease accounts for 30% of deaths in the United States, but media covers it at a mere 2%. Highway deaths and other accidents account for 8% of all deaths, but are covered at about a 2% rate as well. Conversely, terrorism accounts for 0.01% of deaths, yet 33% of media coverage having to do with deaths and injuries focuses on terrorism. So all the mundane non-events in our lives that actually might pose more of a risk to us, like not taking our blood pressure or heart medication regularly, speeding, or texting while driving, those don't factor into our thoughts as being particularly risky. While major dramatic events we hear about on our news media of choice takes up far more space in our brains. And of course, the affect heuristic often determines our decisions. That heuristic has to do with the emotions we feel about something, and it can affect how risky we think it is. Here's a striking example. 
The Journal of the American Medical Association recently published an article that looked at deaths in the U.S. from March to August of 2020. They found that there was a 20% increase in deaths during that time, but only two-thirds of those deaths could be attributed to the coronavirus. What about the other third? They were generally deaths attributed to other serious conditions like heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and stroke. In fact, deaths from heart disease rose 400% in New York City during that period, and diabetes deaths rose 356%. While there are certainly many different reasons for this increase, the doctors in this study believe that at least some of these people were so fearful of contracting COVID-19 that they avoided getting the medical care they needed. They were, of course, under quarantine, but one of the things that they could have left the house for was to get medical care. But with the continuous media reports and warnings about how horrible this disease was, especially for people with pre-existing conditions, these people may have been so afraid that they figured they were better off staying home. But the doctors who published the study say the danger of not getting care for a serious but treatable condition far outweighs the risk of exposure to the virus. So some people may have died because fear caused them to misjudge which behavior was more risky, staying home or going to the doctor or hospital for treatment. So we are not good at determining probabilities or assessing risk. Is there anything we can do about this? First, let's make sure we understand the difference between possibility and probability. Lots of us use those terms interchangeably, but they actually mean different things. On a scale of from 0 to 100% chance of something happening, if something is possible, then it has anywhere from a 1% to 100% chance of happening. That's a wide range. And frankly, if you think about it, pretty much anything's possible. Unless it has a 0% chance of happening, then it's impossible. If something is probable, however, it needs to have a much higher chance of happening than even 50%. A good rule of thumb, although it's not absolute, is to say that anything that has a 75% chance or higher of happening is probable. Obviously, the higher the percentage of it happening, the more probable it is. Another way to look at it is that everything that's probable can also be possible, but not everything that's possible can be labeled as probable. So to put it in weather terms, because they're the best way to illustrate this, if there's a 40% chance of rain, it's possible it might rain, but it probably won't. You might want to take an umbrella, though, so you don't end up all wet, like me. An article on the Conversation website titled How to Deal with Life's Risks More Rationally, written by economist J. L. Zagorski, takes a very pragmatic approach to determining risk by figuring out the expected value of the situation. This is the odds of something happening, its probability, multiplied by the cost or payoff of the situation. In other words, if it doesn't work out, what will be the cost to you? And if it does work out, what is the payoff? 
He points out that you do need to acknowledge your tendency to overestimate the likelihood of less common events happening and underestimate the chances of more common occurrences, which means that you might need to do some research to find a more realistic probability of a particular event occurring than the one you have in your head, which could be way off. There are statisticians and actuaries out there whose entire job revolves around determining probabilities and risk, and lots of that information is available with just a little research. Once you have a reasonable understanding of how likely something is, then you're in a better position to determine what you would lose if your risk didn't pay off or gain if it did pay off. Humans often tend to be loss-averse, meaning that they don't like to lose. In fact, people tend to hate losing much more than they like winning. And so they may be less likely to take a risk if they determine that a loss is more likely. However, if there is some kind of insurance that guards against that loss, in which you pay a small price now to ensure that a much larger price won't have to be paid in the future, they might be more likely to take that risk. Let's apply this idea to the people we talked about earlier with serious but treatable medical conditions like heart disease or diabetes, trying to determine the risk of leaving the house during a pandemic to get treatment. Now, before I do this, let me just say that there are a lot more variables that likely played into the fate of those people, and we know more about COVID-19 than we did several months ago. On top of all that, I don't want to be guilty of hindsight bias, and that can happen when you assume that past events are more predictable than they actually were. So in light of that, let's suppose that there will be a future lockdown in which people like this might face a similar decision, and that certainly could happen. While these people might come in contact with COVID-19 when they venture out of their house, the chances are so variable and depend on so many conditions that you can't really say it's probable. But it is certainly possible. What is probable, though, is that if they don't get treatment for the condition they already have, their health will deteriorate. I mean, most serious medical conditions don't just get better all by themselves. They need some kind of medical intervention. So, possible versus probable, I'd go with what's probable. And if those people have insurance, and in this case I'm not talking about medical insurance, although that's obviously a good thing to have, I mean doing things that will ensure that they will be safer. And guess what those things are? Wearing a mask? staying six feet away from others, washing their hands or using hand sanitizer. Hey, guess what? There is plenty of evidence to show that their risk is diminished to the point that they can go to their medical provider with a reasonable expectation that they will probably be safe. Is it 100% certain? No, of course not but it's highly probable. All I can say is that when I look at this decision from the expected value model, if I were in this situation, I'd take myself to the doctor or hospital and get treatment, making sure to reduce my chances of exposure to the virus by using the appropriate safety measures. It's true, life is full of risk. And we may do everything we can to limit our risk of something happening and still fall victim to it. Very few things in life are 100% certain, 
But that doesn't mean we should either throw caution to the winds and just do whatever the hell we want, because, hey, whatever happens is going to happen, or hide under our bed for the rest of our lives out of fear. Neither of those is a good idea. Living dangerously might be exciting for someone with a higher acceptable level of risk, and if that's you, you probably already know who you are. But fear in and of itself can serve a good purpose by pointing out that something might actually pose a bigger risk than you're willing to take. In the end, though, understanding the true probability of an event and figuring out if the potential outcome is worth the risk while remaining aware of all the heuristics and biases that play into these decisions will make it more likely that we choose wisely. And hey, Maybe we should start thinking about masks, physical distancing, and hand sanitizer, not as infringements, but as insurance. Don't forget to check out all the great info in the show notes. When I first started this podcast, I was only planning on five episodes, but it should be obvious to you by now that I just can't stop talking. So, I'm going to continue creating new episodes. However, this is the last episode for Season 1. I'll be taking some time off so I can get my classes ready for the upcoming semester. But don't worry, I'll be back with more interesting topics and information that will help you think it through. I'll see you in Season 2.